So good evening. As we've come to the Lord in prayer and thanksgiving, so now let us come to him in praise through prayer. And Father, as David would ask, tonight would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of thy word, out of thy law. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. We will be looking at the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, it's a word that comes from, oh, the Latin translation of the word blessed are or happy are. But if you break the word down, and I'm playing with the word a little bit here, the word Beatitude is actually the attitude that should be in the believer. It is the be attitude. So we begin in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up into a mountainside, and when he was set, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. This first recorded message of Jesus in the New Testament is a transition from the Old Testament act or activity of offering sacrifices to the New Testament attitude of submission to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Jesus went to a mountain and sat down when he taught this. Now, for a rabbi to sit down... That's different. See, if you're talking at the dinner table or you're walking and chatting, it's casual conversation. Once the rabbi sits, he's saying, this is a test. I need to lose weight, I guess. (laughs) This is a test question. You better take notes. You will be tested. So he sits and he has the disciples come to him. Meaning this is a message to the believers. And he says, blessed are. These beatitudes are paradoxes. These are the standards of the kingdom of God. Jesus is about to turn the world upside down. The original teachings of the Old Testament were so much seen at this time as external. This is why Jesus would say, you have heard that it was said, but now I say to you. He is now turning from outward activities to inward actions. He is changing from selfishness to selflessness, an attitude that is impossible for someone in the old nature to to do. This is something that says, hey, you've got to have a change of nature. Picture the kingdom coming. It says the lion's going to lie down with the lamb. That's going to be fine. Lions and lambs don't lie down right now unless the lamb is inside the lion. And in, if you could go to that lion and say, you need to understand the grace of God, the mercy of God, the peace of God. You need to have this new nature. If you put the lion and the lamb together, until, you, until that lion's nature is changed in the kingdom, he's still going to eat the lamb. Unless our nature is changed by the power of God, we are still going to fall short of the perfection he's going to demand of us here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That word blessed 
is a Greek word that's often used in the old Greek, the classical Greek of the gods. They've got this pantheon of gods that sits up there and, you know, the world just doesn't affect them. They're just kind of sequestered in their own little world and everything is fine and it's like a perpetually purring kitten. I'm just happy with myself. doesn't matter what happens out there. It doesn't affect me. Jesus chose that word to say, blessed are the poor in spirit. And this word for poor is destitute poor. We think of the working poor. This is, these are the poor beggars. These are people who not only have nothing, but they have no ability to get anything. Absolute shame, poor, begging, head down, poor in spirit. Not poor in wallet. It's not, this is not talking about your finances. This is talking about our attitude before God. Illustrated, Isaiah chapter 6. Don't turn there. Isaiah sees God on the throne high and lifted up and says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When I see God for who he is, then like Isaiah, I would say, All my righteousness is as dirty, bloody, unclean rags. Paul would say, I was a Jew. Born a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, as touching the law, a Pharisee, as touching the righteousness in the law, blameless. And yet all these things I count as dung. It's a pretty strong word. That I might win Christ. When I see myself in Christ, when I see God in his holiness and my sin, hmm. Jesus illustrates it this way. There were a Pharisee, there was a Pharisee and a tax gatherer. Now, the tax gatherers in that age, that's not like the IRS today. These guys were traitors to their country in the Jews' minds. They were excommunicated. They were ostracized. They were hated. He said, the Pharisee went up to the temple and he prayed and he lifted his eyes to heaven. He says, oh, God, I thank you. I'm not a sinner like that tax gatherer. I pray, I tithe, I fast. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you. So with the tax gatherer, stood a long way off, bowed his head and said, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the man that was poor in spirit. That is the man that went to his house, justified. Because we see ourselves as poor in spirit, totally destitute, there is a mourning that takes place. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. I'm not talking about regular sorrow. We all suffer sorrow. I can relate to David when he says, Oh, that I could have the wings of a dove and I could just fly away and hide in the wilderness. Avoid these trials, these tribulations. Anybody can say, yeah, David, yeah, I got that one. Yeah, I like that. I'll underline that. Highlight it, too. We're not talking that type of sorrow. This is godly sorrow. Paul says, godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. The sorrow of the world works death. This is a godly sorrow that says, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. Oh, God, help me. They that mourn. This word for mourn, there are nine Greek words for mourn. This is the worst. This is the, this is the person lamenting at the funeral of a loved one who has been snatched from them. It is the deepest type of mourning, wailing before God. Blessed are they who mourn. This is not despairing. To despair is to give up, to use drugs, to alcohol, to relationships, to anything to cover the pain. This is turning to God, mourning before God. Jesus, again, illustrates this for us. He tells a story of a prodigal son. 
In essence, he has wasted everything, and now as a Jewish boy, he is feeding pigs. Now, of course, in the Jewish culture, culture, pigs are unclean. So this means that this man is constantly unclean, rejected by God and his own people. His own food, he's stealing food from the pig's slop. And he comes to himself and says, Oh, if I could just go back to my father's house. Even the servants are treated better than this. And he begins to return only to find that his father is standing in the road watching for him and his father runs to him embracing him in arms of love and says, My son is home. He who was lost is now found. And then there's a celebration. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Those who are poor in spirit have seen God for who he is and say, all my righteousness is his filthy rags. Which leads to mourning and repentance and turning from sin. So that meekly we receive the loving embrace of our Father. Leads us to blessed are those who are meek. You know, in verse 5, it's a great verse to kind of get started off, but let me kind of put that setting again. The way that Nelson kind of portrayed it to you, the setting was that Jesus saw the multitudes, the crowds. So then he went up to the mountaintop, took his seat, and then catch this. The disciples came to him. Then Jesus spoke these things as he started off with Beatitudes. And this, of course, is known as the Sermon on the Mount. But did you catch what that was reported as when Matthew wrote that down? See, there were crowds that Jesus saw, so he went down to teach. But there was a group, the disciples, came to him. So as I start on this next verse, that would be a great challenge to start off with. God's speaking here. Jesus recorded these words for us. Are you ready to be called to that disciple? Are you ready to come? And let's listen to what Jesus is going to tell us here in verse 5. Blessed are the meek. Some translations say gentle. For they shall inherit the earth. All right, it's time for me to come clean with you. I watch American Idol. I know, I know I shouldn't. But I do watch American Idol. It's a family thing. It's a family thing. I've got to say that. But if you watch American Idol, and I know some of you do, you're just not admitting it. One of the guys that made it, his name's Kevin. They kind of give him a nickname. Yeah, 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 there you are. I see you in there. He's got these little glasses on. He's a little wiry guy. And he's got a nickname, Chicken Little. You know, kind of put him. And he's just this meek, gentle-looking guy. And you kind of think of that term when we read this scripture and go, boy, that's, that's what it's talking about. Let me give you another way to look at it. You see, that's the world's way of meek. Is we kind of look at meekness sometimes, and, and we, in our culture, in our society, it suggests a kind of weakness. So let me put it in perspective for you about when the scripture says about being meek, what it's referring to. You see, later on in the book of Matthew, and Chapter 11, it puts it this way. I'll read this to you. It says, and this is Jesus talking. Remember that idea of meek and gentleness. And I'm reading this from uh, verse 29 and 11. It says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
Now think about this. We're talking about the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, being gentle and meek. A guy who died on the cross that could have called on the entire legion of angels. Being meek? Being weak? I don't think so. In fact, some of you may be here tonight thinking about that idea of meekness in a different sense because maybe it's about being meek before our Lord and Savior, before God himself, as opposed to each other. Because that idea of that they shall inherit the earth is a concept maybe for those that are seeking God. He's got everything for you. Everything for you. Let's continue in verse 6 where it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, and get it right, righteousness. For they will be filled or satisfied, is the way another translation would put that. Now, you don't know me, but I've got a fish tank. I've had fish for a little while, and, and I remember when I first started putting these fish in, I went down to the, just like anybody would, went down to my local Walmart, and I bought a bunch of these little tropical fish, and I bought one that uh, had a name, and his name was Oscar. And I put him in there, these little guys. And, and, uh, and I had a big tank, by the way. It's 125 gallons. It's a large one. I kind of progressed over time. And, and uh, that little Oscar guy turns out to be, even though he started out like about this yay big in that little Walmart tank, it grew. He was one hungry guy, man. He started out eating these little flakes, and then we kind of got more and more. Well, over time, he got you know, pretty fairly large, and, and I used to play little games. I'd take some of the food. Instead of dropping it in the tank, I'd hold it above the tank. And while I held it above the tank, what I noticed is he'd actually, as he got bigger, he's about five inches, he'd, he'd come up and grab it out of your hand. And so that's how people come over to feed the fish. I'd give him some of the food, and, and he would be hungry. He'd come over, and he'd jump up out of the water and just kind of grab it from your hand, and we thought it was cute. Well... He continued to grow. <laughs> Oscar got big. And I thought I was going to share this with my wife one day. And I brought my wife over, Tracy. And I opened up the tank. Watch this. And I grabbed the food. And, and this time, though, we're kind of testing him, kind of raising it up, raising it up out of them. And here comes Oscar. And this, and by the way, there's a difference between being hungry and being hungry. He comes up, roaring up out of the tank, and literally right past my hand, grabbed the food, by the way. Out of the tank, onto the floor. Yeah. My wife is screaming, and I'm looking at poor Oscar, flapping on the rug. By the way, the, the food didn't stay in his mouth. It was out on top of the carpet, and I'm trying to grab him, and, and I'm trying to put him back in the tank, and he's slipping out, because my, he's getting big now. He's about 15 inches. And he's slipping out of my hands, and I'm just... Finally got him back in the tank, and of course, my, my uh, child is crying, what's going on with Dad and the fish? And, now, by the way, Oscar's fine. He's doing well. He's doing... But that guy was hungry. He was hungry. Now, when I read this scripture, I want to bring out two points to you about that. Is he had an appetite. Let's get this drift. Because what God tells us in verse 6 is very clear. It says, for those that hunger, not or thirst, hunger and thirst for righteousness. So the simple application is very clear. It's about our hunger and thirst. Is it for righteousness? Let me define righteousness for you. It's whatever conforms to the revealed will of God. Revealed in his word. See, righteousness is totally told to us through his word. So let's take this back into a personal application. Remember those big uh, billboards, got milk? Let's change it. Got thirst? See, Jesus Christ was called to be the living water in the scripture. 
And the thing we want to be looking for is our thirst for righteousness, the thirst for determining God's will, his revealed will. It isn't like this is a secret to us. He's revealed to us in his word. You see, there's something when, when he promises us that we will be filled or satisfied, as it ends there in verse 6, the real analogy is this, is we are going to be filled. See, all of us are filled, whether we're hungry or not. The scripture is telling us, are we going to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness? And then we'll be filled or satisfied. You know, when I go to a movie, one of my favorite things to do is grab that big bucket of popcorn. Drives my wife nuts because I've got a high cholesterol problem. But she lets me indulge in that, and I'll buy that big, well, it has to come with a big old honking thing of soda to go right there with it. You know, something about eating that popcorn makes you want to drink that drink. And when God tells us about hungering for his word and righteousness, it isn't about hungering or thirst. It's about a hunger and thirst. So let me submit to you this application, that your hunger for the revealed will of God for you personally is in combination with a thirst for the living water of Jesus Christ himself within you. See, many of us see religious in a lot of ways. And the idea of being hungry for what God's telling us isn't being matched with the thirst of the living water, Jesus Christ, within us. You see, it's a, it's a kind of self-righteousness. It's not about a relationship with him. I remember that so dearly in my own life. You see, I thought I had that hunger. You see, I thought I had the knowledge there. But I forgot about the thirst. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you're biting along and you're getting that hunger for righteousness. But the thirst hasn't been quenched. You know, if that's you, at the end of the services, over in our prayer room, feel free to come by. Man, I'd love to talk to you about how that thirst can be satisfied. You know, let me end it with this one comment, and I'm going to turn here to the book of Timothy. Because this idea of pursuing righteousness goes on to another way. And this is 2 Timothy 2. It's verse 22, and it says it this way in the uh, NASB version. It says, Now flee from the youthful lusts or desires of youth and pursue righteousness. Wow, man. You see, the idea of righteousness, when we're trying to hunger for it, it's because we are fleeing from something else. We are to remove what's in us to replace it with what God's telling us. So let's read the rest of this. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Get this part here, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The idea of accountability. And then I can't stop at 22. Let me go to 23 because I think it applies. It says, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And I think that's so apropos in our body this last few weeks. Let's do this. Let's be an encouragement to one another as we pursue righteousness, the righteousness of God in our lives, and refuse meaningless quarrels. Good evening to all of you. It's great to spend time with family in this setting. When we come to this part in the Beatitudes, I want to share with you a transitionary statement from Charles Spurgeon who says, 
I have compared the Beatitudes to a ladder of light, and I've remarked that every one of them rises above and out of those which preceded it. So you will notice that the character mentioned here in this next Beatitude is higher than that which has been given before, higher than that of the man who is poor in spirit or who mourns. Those things concern himself. He is yet feeble, and out of that weakness there grows meekness of spirit, which makes him endure wrongs from others. But to be merciful is more than that. For the man now not merely endures wrongs, but he confers benefits. The beatitude before this one concerns hungering and thirsting after righteousness, but here the man has gone beyond mere righteousness. He has risen beyond seeking that which is right into the seeking of that which is good and kind and generous, and the doing of kindly things toward his fellow men. And Spurgeon continues, the whole ladder here rests upon grace. And grace puts every stave into its place. And it is grace which, in this place, has taught the man to be merciful and has blessed him and given him the promise that he shall obtain mercy. Throughout my time with you this evening, I've I've employed the aid of Spurgeon in order to shed some greater light on the two passages that I'll be sharing with you. Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, to be merciful, one would ask, what exactly does that look like? What does being merciful mean? And so here we will cover a short list of some of the considerations of what it means to be merciful. First, to be merciful would no doubt include having kindness to those who are suffering need. This merciful person would not be inconvenienced by those who are lacking, but they would be willing to stop and willing to do their part, whether in prayer or in providence, to supply the need of the one who lacks. The merciful one here also is one who has an eager eye and even a weeping eye for mourners who are around him. There are many reasons why those around us may grieve And the merciful man chooses to walk softly around those broken hearts, seeing how he might confer comfort to those who are mourning. I came across a story of a little girl who had just come home from her neighbor's house. This was her neighbor friend who had recently died. Her dad asked her, why did you go there? The little girl answered, I went to comfort my dear friend's mother. The father asked, what was it that you could have possibly done to bring her mom comfort now? The little girl responded by saying, Daddy, I simply climbed into her lap and cried with her. That is a picture of a merciful heart. A merciful heart is also one that provides full forgiveness of all personal offenses against themselves. They choose not to take to heart any injuries that are done to them, any insults, whether intended or unintended. Of such a nature, Spurgeon says, quote, I recommend to you, Christian, always have one blind eye and always have one deaf ear. I've always tried to have them, and my blind eye is the best eye that I have, and my deaf ear is the best ear that I have. 
There is many a speech that you may hear, even from your best friends, that would cause you much grief and produce much ill. So in that case, simply do not hear it. They'll let the whole thing die, but if you say something about it and bring it up again and again and fret and worry over it, magnify it and tell somebody else about it, bring a half dozen people into the quarrel, that's exactly the way family disagreements have been made. It's also the way, Spurgeon says, Christian churches have been broken up and the devil magnified and God dishonored. Oh, do not let it be so with us, Spurgeon concludes, but let us feel that if there is any offense against us, blessed are the merciful and such we should mean to be. We would also say that these merciful are those who would have compassion in their heart, even toward those who are outwardly, overtly sinful. This would be the person who would see the greatest of sinners on this earth and weep in direct proportion to their sin because their soul is destined for hell. This merciful person can also be described as the one who seeks not to look upon his brother's worst attributes and have them be magnified. This would be one who understands the scripture which said, love covers a multitude of sins. This brother labors to see his brothers and sisters as God sees them. Finally, and though this is a short list in which we could include many, many more examples the merciful one doesn't lay unrealistic expectations upon those around him. I have a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter who is just amazingly articulate and very bright, and so often I find myself as her father forgetting that she's only three-and-a-half years old. And because of her manner of speech, I begin to deal with her in such a way as if she's even a peer of mine, having expectations that are burdensome. And often God or my wife reminds me of my daughter's age, in which case I'm reminded to be merciful. Of this list describing the merciful person, one would say, Preacher, how could we ever fathom to behave such a way? Let men perhaps treat us as doormats. Well, it's been rightly said in response to such a, an objection, Try it, brother. Try it, sister, and you shall find that any misery that comes to you through being too tender-hearted or even too gentle or too merciful will be so light an affliction that it will not be worthy to be compared with the peace of mind that it will bring you and the constant wellspring of joy which it will put in your own bosom as well as into the bosom of others. And on that note, we transition now to the next beatitude. Blessed are those who are pure of heart, for they shall see God. Through and through in the scriptures, God communicates to us that he is most concerned with the heart of man. God in scriptures insists over and over again that until the heart is pure, the life will never be clean. External purity is all that men simply ask of us, for the scripture says man looks on the outward appearance, but rather we know God looks upon the heart. The first thing to be noticed about this beatitude is the implication that impurity of heart is the cause of much blindness to mankind. There are more 
moral beauties and immoral horrors which certain men cannot see because they are impure of heart. Let's consider a short list of these. First, there is the sin of covetousness. Such a person is discontent, constantly looking for the things that they don't have, and they cannot see God in the midst of those things. It's been rightly said that there's no dust that so blinds man than gold dust. Another sin would be the sin of the oppressor. This would be the person who's heavy-handed or burdensome in how they lead. This would be the person who's a bully or mean in how they demand things of others. They cannot see that person as precious in the sight of God. The same can also be said of the lustful heart, the heart that is constantly longing after sin or sins so that their flesh might be satisfied. This heart does not see God. And perhaps one of the most worst conditions is that of having a duplicitous heart, The man who's quite satisfied with the name of Christian without the life of the Christian will never see God nor anything until his heart is fully devoted to God. And finally, traditionalism. Holding fast to the traditions of men can easily blind one to seeing God. I would picture such as perhaps an old truck stuck in a dirt road sinking in mud as the tires spin. Someone said, Traditionalism always looks to the shell, but it never gets to the kernel. It licks the bone, but it never gets to the marrow. The widow's house is being devoured, even at the very time when the Pharisee is making his long prayers in the synagogue or at the corner on the street. Such a man cannot see God. And again, this list too can go on and on regarding those who cannot see God. But there comes a purification of the heart that allows us to see God. This heart coming clean before God. It allows us to see God in many ways, a few of which are, first, we see God in nature. You find yourself driving down the road and seeing a beautiful sunset and you immediately think of the grandeur and the glory of the God that you love, the God that you serve, the God who is the one who made that beautiful sunset. You see God all around you in the creation. These people also see God in circumstance. They see things happening around them, and even though they're not sure about them, they have a purity of heart that allows them to trust that in the midst of seeing what I'm seeing and perhaps not discerning everything that I'm seeing, I trust that I am seeing God at work in this. Such a person also sees God in the midst of storms. They, like the disciples, are in the midst of a terrible, terrible storm. And they see these waves, the greatest threat to their existence. But they see on those waves the Savior riding to them on the very current of that thing which has them terrified. Such a purity of heart allows God also to be seen in the Scriptures. They open up the Word of God and they see it as personal notes from God to them. Such also see God in his church, God among his people. A gathering like this is simply not a gathering of people, but it's much more than that. It's an assemblage of the body of Christ himself. And in your gift of exhortation, they're encouraged by the heart of God. And in your hand of giving, they're receiving from God's providence. And such a person also sees God in a unique way. 
I had lunch with a friend yesterday. My wife asked me at the end of the day, how did your day go? I said, it was great. I actually got to see Martin. What that meant was I got to spend time with him. I got to talk to him. And those who are pure at heart in their relationship with Christ or those who get to meet with God, they have a boldness and an access with confidence that they can come before the heavenly throne of grace and spend time with their Savior. And lastly, the time shall come when those who have thus seen God on earth will also rejoice in seeing God in heaven. And now Pastor Allen will come up and close the Beatitudes with you all. Thank you, Neil. God blesses those who work for peace for they will be called the children of God. Now, some of your translations uh, may put that as uh, peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. It also could be translated, actually, the reconcilers. But I love this particular translation because it brings out something I think is so key to us, and that is that peace is something that we have to work at. Would you agree? You know, in Paul's second letter to the church of Corinth, Chapter 5, he said, And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against him. And I think we can tell from these two passages and even from our own personal lives that something like peace is something that takes a lot of work. It's definitely a task that we have. But what's interesting to me here is that Paul points out that it's a task that's given to us by whom? It's given to us by God. Each and every one of us that are followers of Christ have been given this particular task. And I think it's important for us to realize the reason we were given it is that it doesn't come naturally, does it? Peace really doesn't come naturally to us. Strife does. That comes pretty naturally. You know, I remember when my uh, children were young and growing up, that um, you would constantly hear them fighting and seemingly bickering with one another all the time. And uh, any parents that can relate to that out here tonight? And I just remember as a dad sometimes being so blessed when they weren't. But it was something that really seemed like the whole family had to work towards. Do, Do you see what I'm saying? That it was a task. It didn't come naturally to us. But that, of course, is because of our sin, selfish nature. We want what we want when we want it. And that's true of every one of us, not just kids, of course, right? And it's often amazing to me, I've I've thought this, and maybe you have too, but um, I've thought, you know, some of the arguments that we have as a family, or even my wife and I have, they're like sitcom material, right? I mean, if, if people were to be filming it and then would broadcast it, you know, people would be laughing in audiences all over the world because sometimes they're over very ridiculous things, aren't they? You forgot to put the top on the toothpaste or you turn the toilet paper the other way or whatever it is. I mean, they're so seemingly insignificant arguments. Now, we don't actually have those at our home, but by way of example. But I love the rest of what Jesus is telling us. Because he says, For they shall be called the children of God. Or as some translations put it, the sons of God. 
Do you realize that what marks us, what sets us apart, what makes us holy, if you will, is the fact that we have a never-ending effort, a work towards peace. That's a mark that sets us apart as Christians. We work towards peace. Romans 12 tells us, Do your part to live in peace with everyone as much as is possible for you. Now, I can only do my part. It's up to the other party to do their part. But as Christians, we're all called to do our part to make that happen. This passage goes on to say that God blesses those who are persecuted because they live for God. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Paul told us that, uh, yes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will suffer what? Persecution. But note he says, evil people and imposters will flourish. They will go on deceiving others and they themselves will be deceived. Now that sounds fair, doesn't it? Those of us who do right are going to be faced with some of these things, but those who do evil will in fact seemingly flourish. Well, I'd... I didn't make up the rules, so don't be mad at me. But the reality is I think we've all experienced that, haven't we? We've seen good and godly people suffer persecution and go through trials and tribulations. But on the other hand, we've seen some that get away with evil and prosper even in that. But there's a day, of course, coming when we'll all stand before the Lord. Amen. It's important to notice why, though, in this passage that we are persecuted. In fact, Jesus basically repeats himself here in this beatitude because he emphasizes it once again in verse 11 and 12. And let me read those two verses to you. God blesses you when you are mocked and persecuted and lied about because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. Now, I'll be the first to admit I'm challenged by being happy and glad during persecution. Is there any other amens out there? It's hard. It's tough. I've really got to keep my eye on the prize, as it were. And I think that's what every single one of us has to do. But when I realize that we're being mocked and persecuted because we're his followers, that helps to bring some meaning to it, doesn't it? Because, of course, we know that that's what happened to him as well. He was mocked. He was persecuted. And he went the additional step of being crucified. Every time I think I've got it tough, I just like to listen to some of my brother's stories that are in Asia or in China where they have real persecution, not the sissy kind of stuff that we deal with here in the States. And I always walk away feeling kind of like a baby, okay, because I don't think I'm as tough as a lot of them are. But the reality, even beyond that, is to realize that I've not been crucified. I've not been persecuted to the point that Christ was, right? And yet he suffered for me in that. What do we get out of it? Not just heaven. We get a great reward waiting for us. I have no clue what that is. If you do, come let me know. But I'm just guessing it's pretty amazing. And it's something, as far as I'm concerned, that I really look forward to. I'm hopeful for. And so in the midst of that persecution, I've got to remember what this passage says to me. Wow, be happy about it. 
a great reward awaits you. I found a short story that I'll finish with here. It's entitled, He Said No. It's from an unknown author. I asked God to grant me patience. He said no. Patience is a byproduct of tribulations. It isn't granted. It's earned. I asked God to give me happiness. He said no. I give you blessings. Happiness is up to you. I asked God to spare me pain. He said, no. Suffering draws you apart from worldly cares and brings you closer to me. I asked God to make my spirit grow. He said, no. You must grow on your own, but I will prune you to make you fruitful. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. Of course, he said, no. I will give you life so that you may enjoy all things. I asked God to help me love others as much as he loves me. He said, ah, finally you have the idea. The truth to be learned, stop telling God how big your storm is. Instead, tell your storm how big your God is. Amen. For those of you that are visiting here this evening, you've come on a very special night. You might have noticed that we have some trays up front here, and that's because we're celebrating the Lord's Supper tonight, what we commonly refer to as communion. And we were told to do this. In fact, Scripture says, For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. See, it's a reminder to us. It's kind of like these passages that we read tonight and the promises that came from them. In fact, one of those promises I love because uh, Nelson started this evening with the idea of blessed are those who are what? Poor in spirit. My translation puts it this way. God blesses those who realize their need for him. There's a good chance tonight if you've come as a visitor that you recognize tonight that you have a need for Christ. And we're going to pray here in just a minute. We're going to give you that opportunity to come and receive what Jesus has for you. And as you can tell from what we've read to you tonight, it's pretty exciting. But for the rest of us, we need to recognize that we need to be careful as we share in the Lord's Supper. Scripture, in fact, tells us that we need to examine ourselves to make sure that we're not unworthy. And maybe there's something that you came in with tonight, a grudge, an issue of sin that you're dealing with. And as we pray, I'm just going to encourage you to take that before the Lord as well. Because what the Lord did that we're remembering is he gave his life on that cross so that all of our sins could be forgiven, every single one of them. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask the communion board to come up as... uh, We close this part in prayer. Father, we come right now to you, Lord, acknowledging that we truly do have a need for you. Father, I recognize that there may be some here among us tonight that um, just stopped in, saw a bunch of people gathered at this place and said, I wonder what's going on there. And maybe they just thought, I'm going to go check it out. Maybe they were invited by a friend tonight. And just through the teaching tonight, they've recognized, I've got a need for Jesus. 
I've been walking my life away from him, and uh, now's maybe the right time to get right. And, Lord, I just present that as an opportunity right now. If there's anybody here that would just like to raise their hand and say, you know what, Pastor, I need Jesus. I want you to do that right now because we want you to celebrate this communion supper with us too. Father, if you're working on somebody's heart out there, I just pray that they would pray just right now to you and just say, Jesus, I know you died for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. I believe that you died for those sins and became my Savior. And now tonight, I want to make you my Lord. Father, if that's the case, I pray that whoever that man or woman might be, that they would celebrate with us tonight as we share in this communion. And, Lord, as well, I pray for the rest of us who are your followers, Lord, have already made that decision. I pray, Lord, if there's something that we've got against a brother or sister or even sin that we're dealing with that separates us from you, Lord, we would confess it to you right now, Lord. We would agree that it's wrong, and we would receive the cleansing that you have for that. Lord, may you be glorified as we celebrate in this communion together.